0: Or Whatever Movies
1: with Wesley and Iris. What up, and welcome to Or Whatever Movies. I'm your co-host, Iris, and I'm here with my older brother, Wesley. Today we're talking a movie available on Netflix. Ladies and gentlemen, prepare yourself because Wes is about to nerd out 2018's The Ballad of Buster Scruggs.
0: I think the Coens are the finest filmmakers overall working today. They're very polarizing for me. I guess that's the right word because I adore their dramas, whereas their comedies, the Oh Brother, Where Art Thou's, the Burn After Readings. The Hail Caesars. Yeah, the the Big Lebowski, come at me, bro, geez. They really fall flat for me a lot of the time. There's the in-betweens, like Fargo, I guess could be a black comedy. I like Raising Arizona pretty well. But Buster Scruggs is the first in-between that works for me. But you
1: like the True Grits and the Inside Lewin Davises and you said Fargo. Take
0: it easy with Inside Luan Davis. They have just such a steady hand, such an assured style of filmmaking. They're not pretentious. They probably don't care what anybody else thinks. And and they're not without humor. They're, you know, I feel like Buster Scruggs is full of mirth and Murder. And humor bubbling just under the wall, of course. But it's also really funny. I feel like this universe is like Star Wars. Like, it's obviously not meant to be taken seriously, but it's also real feeling. It's like a, in a different, it's a parallel universe, it's like in a galaxy far, far away.
1: Well, it certainly is set in a time long, long ago. Are you talking specifically about the anthology that is the Ballad of Buster Scruggs? Or are you talking about the Coen Brothers' oeuvre?
0: Well, this is definitely a Western, and this is in the same universe as True Grit. During a Meal Ticket with uh, Harry Melling, which we will get to undoubtedly, there's a sign for Greaser Bob's, which comes up by one of the trappers in True Grit. Maddie in True Grit tells, begins to tell the tale of the Midnight Caller, which we actually get in The Mortal Remains in this movie, at least part of it. And uh, in The Girl Who Got Rattled with Alice Longabow in the very beginning, They're talking. they show Grandma Turner who is the only actual physical remnant of True Grit, because Maddie had to room with Grandma Turner, who snores continually.
1: Sidebar with our audience, did I not warn you?
0: It really only extends this connection to True Grit, which I adore.
1: So you unabashedly love this movie.
0: Not all of it, but this world. How do we
1: begin to parse this one out, given it's six vignettes?
0: It's very easy for me, and it comes down to watchability. Some of these, maybe half of them, I've watched numerous times. As much as I like The Girl Who Got Rattled, the Alice Longabout, The Wagon Train one, until reviewing it for this review, I kind of forgot it existed.
1: (laughs) I think it's The Gal, The Gal Who Got Rattled. Yeah, that's what I said. You said, girl, review the tape.
0: Okay. Full confession right up front. I've watched The Mortal Remains no less than six times. Still have no clue what that's about.
1: (laughs) I have my ideas, but let's start with my favorite of the vignettes. How about that? Okay. Uh, You want to take a guess?
0: I'm probably going in general with All Gold Canyon.
1: Ooh, interesting.
0: Or the obvious one would be near Algodones, which is probably my favorite.
1: Interesting too, but wrong. Really? Number three, Meal Ticket.
0: (laughs) Maybe the one second to The Mortal Remains I've watched the least. Not to say that it's (laughs) bad. But I don't think Liam Neeson says more than six words.
1: Neither of them do. I mean, there is no dialogue.
0: Aside from the monologues? Between
1: the two main characters, exactly. (laughs) It's like this really interesting case study in silent filmmaking. I mean, Henry Melling does a lot of talking, a lot of jabbering up there on the stage, but it's almost a silent film.
0: Very different from his oratory fire that we got in The Devil All the Time.
1: Yeah, but similar, right? His stage persona is pretty similar to the preacher character. He's a, he's definitely a showman, right?
0: I mean, what else has he got? I was able to lock in my fiancé because I played to my strength, which is not being visible, but charming through my words. And if you're lacking certain physical attributes, as Harry Melling is in this one, you go with your strength. You're not only his meal ticket, but I guess he's yours. It's yours as well.
1: and only until Liam Neeson finds a chicken that can make him more money.
0: It's such a curiosity, but I don't see, if you watch this again for sheer enjoyment, I'm not sure that you'll keep revisiting Meal Ticket. I think you get that one in one go.
1: Maybe it's not the meal ticket that keeps on giving, but it definitely was the most engaging for me, and I think it's because the the storytelling is super simple. I mean, not that the other ones are super complicated. Um, There is so much that's communicated between you know um, in body body language. I don't know if that's the right thing. (laughs) Torso language. In trunk language, there's so much communication that happens between Harry Mellings' character and Liam Neeson's character, and Liam Neeson's smile, ugh, at the end is so heartbreaking.
0: <laughs> Where he approaches the wagon, like, "Hey, so how you doing?"
1: Oh, uh, I think he might have even given like a little eight eyebrow raise. <laughs> <laughs> Want to see the
0: river? How would you like to pee off that bridge? A rare treat <laughs> you. See treat what for I'm you?
1: saying? You you can project all of this dialogue and interaction onto this one look that communicates so much.
0: When the guy started to, when the returns started to diminish and the chicken was booming business, you switch it up. And that's really all he was.
1: And it's not that Liam Neeson's character didn't go through the motions with a modicum of care or empathy. Like, the food was a little too hot. Like, let him blow on it before you shove it in his mouth. Like, don't let him get cold. Like, Harry Melling's character was so vulnerably aware of his dependence on Liam Neeson. And he, you know, did what he needed to do. He showed up on stage every night. He performed his little heart out. And and he kept up his end of the bargain.
0: It was probably a regular-sized heart. He just looks little because he's missing appendages. Liam Neeson is no, ready for it, spring chicken himself. So his total dependence on that character, when Liam Neeson kicks the bucket, who's possibly going to take care of, of Harry Melling's character? Really, his fate is at Liam Neeson's whim, almost.
1: I guess the Harry Melling character, he was fated for a tragic end. Things weren't, you know looking all that great for him and they had a good run until I guess it was time for Liam Neeson to move on. I mean I'm not justifying his action because it's murder but this one was
0: extra dark and yet you laugh so joyfully at just the idea of his little smile when he returns to the thing
1: well it's just great filmmaking and if you want to step out from the experience and be a little bit more objective about it it's truly truly tragic but i think that the the element of removal that you were talking about before Like this happening, you know, not just setting wise, but like universe wise, someplace other than the world that we live in. That removal, I think, helps us be able to enjoy these stories as opposed to feeling like the the real weight of their darkness.
0: Yeah. Kill Bill is a a decent comparison. It's so heightened in certain respects, and yet it feels so real. They have a real knack. The Coens have a real knack for a genuine feel. There wasn't a lot of polish in this movie. But I think it's mostly about the patience of giving us the feel without showing us. It's very patient and they know where to linger and where to wrap it up. For example, in uh, near Algodonis, when he is saved from hanging by the cattle rustler guy, he like yells, hey, on the horizon. And the guy like really far away starts riding and it's a really long time before he gets there. (laughs) <laughs> and then the, the guy pulls, and then he rides away because the posse's after them. And the guy pulls him in front of the sheriff. He's like, "So what's this one done? He's rustling cattle." And the dude's like, "Good enough, hang him." And then, bam! He's on the, he's on the, <laughs> he's on the gallows, and then he's dead. It's like when they want to, they'll just go at a clip and move through the stuff. And then other times there's so much languishing and you just luxuriate in these things. It makes me happy.
1: Yeah. A lot of magic in the pacing, even with the arrival of the black clad cowboy in in the eponymous Buster Scruggs. They certainly let that play out. And then, bam. Busted Scruggs is down. Well, I mean, I think that was a great illustration in Near All But now that we've covered Meal Ticket, let's go to your favorite
0: vignette. I think that it was Near All because the pan shot thing is basically the best thing ever. (laughs) I think that Steven Root, who had been in Coen Brothers movies before, and if you don't recognize him, he was Milton in Office Space. But this one, he's just so adorable as the teller in the bank turned <laughs> vigilante, I guess. And just everything about the nuance of his speech is so pitch perfect. And he's like like hooping and a hollering when he comes running out covered in pans. Shot. It just cracks me up every time. But probably for all it contains, although the beginning is very slow until he reaches the cantina, I got to go with Buster Scruggs himself. No. And the reason is because Tim Blake Nelson, he's the narrator. Might as well have been the narrator for the whole piece, but it really is just contained. I mean, Buster Scruggs leaves us, what, 20% of the way through the movie? But just his manner of speaking fits in my love of True Grit and just the ability to watch Coen Brothers characters talk on screen is fascinating to me. Everyone else is just gruff and he's just so effervescent and happy until it's time to kill people. (laughs) Gunslinging is always good
1: Everyone else is a Surly Joe except for Buster Scruggs
0: Right It's hard to explain Only the Coen brothers would have the scene Where he would shoot all five fingers off And that would be the gimmick But then he changes to the B-cam
1: Oh yeah And you see the beginning of the change on A-cam Yes
0: Yes and and then he continues talking to directly to the audience and does the thing where it's like oh, I got the one bullet left now his heart is on the right but in the mirror it's on the left but we both facing the same way and the gun is upside down ah oh, uh, best uh, not play it too fancy and then he does the fancy thing. Uh-huh. And it's so hilarious. And honestly, I've seen the sticking point for everybody. When I tried to get the sneak to watch this movie, the fingers were too much for her. The arrow through the neck when James Franco is about to be hanged is too much for her. And if you can't get past those points, you don't. It's like, no, no, no. Don't let it interrupt the magic. But it really does. Because this movie was pretty graphic.
1: I mean, featured or implied murder or dead bodies. Across the board. At least you got to get on board. Otherwise, the magic's not going to come through.
0: And we talk about the patience and letting things play for a long time. The poor prospector is shot in the back and then the dude sits down and like rolls a cigarette and just waits and watches the blood s- spread across his back. It's like five minutes of him rolling a cigarette and thinking about life as he watches the dude whose claim he just jumped
1: is he waiting to be assured that he's dead or is he just having a cigarette after his murder sex
0: well he shoots him once and then watches him he holds the gun on him for a long time and then sits down deliberately puts the gun near at hand like okay if I need this gun it's right here and then he rolls himself a cigarette and he sits and watches to make sure the guy is dead now I don't know if that's because the noise he's afraid it would draw somebody else or if he didn't want to waste that second bullet because it would that was his downfall because is once Tom Waits, who's the guy who played the prospector, gets a hold of the gun, he has no problem plugging him a few times so that we know, even though the other guy watched the dude bleed all the way across his shirt, when Tom Waits shoots that dude through the hand and in the face and then shoots him repeatedly, we know that dude is dead.
1: Well, you probably don't need a lot of clarification on the ballad of Buster Scruggs because it's pretty straightforward. But I have to say that's probably my least favorite. And you know how I feel about opening shots, but man, is that vignette start off in a really annoying way.
0: With the song and and inside the guitar? With the
1: song and I'm just like, I was immediately bored in fact this is the first time that i watched the entire anthology in the first time i attempted to years ago probably when this first came out and was nominated for a bunch of oscars i was immediately turned off so much so that i (laughs) i never finished it i never finished it and i don't even think i realized that it was an anthology maybe i would have stuck with it otherwise but yeah i find the first one to be despite it being a western and there being poker playing and gunfighting all of those things that you love to see in westerns I was really turned off by the initial vignette.
0: It's the only one where we really get a lot of exposition, aside from the mortal remains where it gets kind of tiresome, in fact.
1: You know, I, I see the charm. I really do. Once he gets into the action of it, it's pretty good. Him flying away with angel wings.
0: That vignette is bookended <laughs> by some pretty tough stuff. And honestly, I don't even watch those anymore.
1: Bonus trivia. What is the dead man's hand?
0: Dead man, aces and eights. That's a uh, wild Bill Hickok's hand.
1: Ding, 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 ding. Point for Wes.
0: My question is I'm not sure exactly what the additional card was.
1: I don't think it really matters what the whole card is.
0: I think if you go to Deadwood, North Dakota, and you see where he died, I think they have the display and he's got the dead man's hand on the table. And that's the one I really want to see to find out what that other card was.
1: All right, let's move on to the uh, hotly contested The Mortal Remains.
0: Okay. I mean, symbolically, they are blah, 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 ferrying these souls to the underworld or something, Exactly.
1: If you got that, then why are you questioning what it's about?
0: Because it was like 40 minutes long. And once you get that, you're like, okay, I got it, the theme. And beyond that, did it have to be quite so long? Did it have to have so many sad ditties without musical accompaniment? The story about... The two kinds of people, the upright and the sinners and her living with her daughter and her daughter's husband and and Saul Rubinick, who is a joyful appearance, saying maybe, you know, they don't actually love you the way that you think. And what was all that for, especially what was all that as a capper for this long movie of other better vignettes?
1: I think that The Mortal Remains is like one long joke (laughs) to a not terribly funny punchline it's like so what happens when you get a frenchman and a scotsman and an englishman and a
0: fur trapper
1: and an uptight christian and a fur trapper in a coach to hell and the punchline is uh, i'm not really sure but they didn't get their luggage off the top of that coach when they arrived
0: (laughs) the beauty of buster scruggs because someone had asked the Coens. There was some speculation that it was going to be the Coen Brothers TV show. And then they were like, oh, let's just do the Mulholland Drive thing and let's put it into a movie. They assert they were always individually written stories that they had developed over 20 years and put into a movie. It had never intended to be all tied together into one big story. And so for that reason, I can say I watched The Mortal Remains carefully for this review, but really haven't watched it in in quite a long time. Whereas I regularly revisit about half of this movie because they're so contained.
1: It's definitely contained narrative-wise and definitely connected thematically. And for a pretty long feature, it's, it's good because you can break it up without there being a real, you know, discontinuation of the story. I watched this over the course of two nights. Because it was kind of a slog for me. I mean, I could see the joy for watching them individually. But um, by the time I got to the Mortal Remains, I was pretty... My patience was pretty much tested.
0: Well, that wasn't going to help at all.
1: The Mortal Remains piece? Yeah.
0: Having that be... Like, you look and there's like an, <laughs> another 40 minutes or something to go in the movie. And it's the <laughs> and it's the Mortal Remains? Man.
1: Ugh. All right, so we still got near Algodanis in earnest, All Gold Canyon, and The Gal Who Got Rattled.
0: The Gal Who Got Rattled, I was actually really surprised how much that one held up because I literally forgot about it. But that one was probably one of the most complicated to film. They were continually in a real wagon train. They built 14 custom wagons and they rolled those stupid things across the prairie. The continuity must have been a nightmare. And they spent all that time out in the sticks to tell a strangely simple story that could have been largely contained in a wagon circle on a, on a soundstage. They
1: just keep wagon training. (laughs) They
0: just keep wagon training. All the trouble taken of demonstrating her brother's death, setting it up at the table beforehand, it all could have been like that. They could have been in a wagon circle where she's mourning the death of her brother, which happened off screen. And she's complaining to anybody who will listen about her employee who is asking for it is very high wage or something.
1: Oh yeah. Mr. Arthur keeps on keeps on repeating <laughs> that it's
0: It's so funny. But they didn't have to do it quite so committedly as they did. And for that, I appreciated
1: it. Yeah, likewise, I didn't. I appreciated that they didn't skimp on the exposition, right? Everything is very well set up. Her brother, she doesn't simply refer to her brother as a bad businessman. He demonstrates it himself at the dinner table. And she doesn't have to get into the whole business of, of President Pierce because President Pierce is established and people are annoyed. And he ultimately leads to her, her downfall, which isn't too overshadowed, but is perfectly set up. Even the relationship between her and Mr. Knapp, they give us time to kind of settle into it. Like, it's not the most passionate romance but you totally get it right you see how their are how he softens in their interactions you see how she opens up to him and you feel okay i think there's something viable here which is all the more hard to take when you see her ultimate fate
0: right i mean there's there's a progression of like five awkward conversations where he grows ever so slightly bolder so as to approach the idea of proposing marriage
1: not to mention the final time where he's like, you know, there's more than one way to skin a cat. And uh, if this doesn't work for you. <laughs>
0: Ready to let her off the hook. Yeah. What a good Billy Knapp he is. And for that reason, I think the gal who got rattled is the saddest vignette. It's horrible <laughs> that Mary Milling gets tossed off a bridge. Buster meets his fate, but we, we know he'll, find, he'll be fine because he traded his spurs for wings. Uh, James Franco got to see a pretty girl before he got the noose. And the mortal remains, who knows what happens. The prospector in all gold canyon. Tom Waits gets his gold. He takes a a gut shot or whatever, but didn't hit nothing serious. And he (sighs) makes off with Mr. Pocket. But poor Alice and her useless death. It was particularly effective. Like, it was sad. Like, oh, what is he going to tell Billy Knapp? I think that was the one where I was like, that's terrible. What is he going to tell him? So that's when I started pausing. And reading the the book, because you can glean some other information from the pages of the book as it closes that chapter. Did you do that for any of these stories?
1: I attempted to. My eyes are so bad. I I only got a few words here and there. Nothing of significance.
0: Well, it doesn't, no, it doesn't impart anything new. But I was like, no, that can't be how that story ends. But it was.
1: She could have escaped. There's no reason, this is like a Titanic-level problem. Like, there's no reason that Mr. Arthur couldn't have put her on, the moment he saw the native, he, sh- he should have put her back on her horse, I don't even know if she was off at that point, and sent her running back to the wagon train. They weren't that far. She didn't have to wait in the gully for the battle to ensue. Like, Jack should have gotten on the door with Kate.
0: <laughs> they even myth that one, do you know that? No. Yeah, the two dudes got on the door. And they both fit. Yeah, they both fit. Of course, they both fit.
1: That was a heavy ass door.
0: One day, it actually wasn't a door. It was the archway above the door. But one day, when we review Titanic, I'll divulge my ideas for how to have survived.
1: She could have gotten away. I know. I'm, what happened to President Pierce? Was he even? Did he run away as soon as the battle started?
0: President Pierce is with her when she dies, sadly, and he trots off next to Mr. Arthur.
1: Oh, that's right, nipping at his heels and yipping.
0: And so there's a lot shown without context about each of these stories. The, the opening of Near Algodonis is Stephen Root yelling pan shot covered in pans with a rifle. And the gal who got rattled shows Mr. Arthur post Alice's death walking back to the wagon train with President Pierce trotting alongside him. They're loosely interconnected vignettes, and I don't think there's a larger message to the movie. I think it's the Coen brothers noodling around in a world that they love with such a sh- steady and assured hand that I love it also. And I can forgive the, dare I say, crappier bits of this long-ass movie because I just don't often watch those crappier bits because they're contained in their crappy individual narratives.
1: I haven't heard a lot of crappier bits here, except for maybe you ragging a little bit on The Mortal Remains.
0: There's no remorse. There's no sadness in this movie, except for maybe the gal who got rattled.
1: Very sad story. I definitely felt it, and it sets up an impossible question of what Mr. Arthur is is left to do. Mr. Arthur does an awful lot of talking at the end, where where before he was pretty much... Uh, silent
0: and so strange, and Mr. Arthur, who you didn't think capable of taking on a band of of savages in this case, uh, really <laughs> stands up to all of them with the help of some gopher holes. I was
1: about to say, what does he say? Dog hole. <sighs> all right, so can we wrap it up with near algodonus and all gold canyon?
0: I just like the setup of the methodical <laughs> We go through the whole methodology of the prospectors, uh, not keepers yet. Mm-hmm. Uh, little ones and like he he tracks from beginning to end the spot on the river where the gold starts to show plants his flags uh, digs it all up only to be shot and he deserves his vindication other than that it's just beautiful and you have one person. This is, it, it would seem to me like amateur storytelling, right? Where it's just one character and then there's another character. It's like, remember Throw Mama from the Train? Where he's yeah. like, it wasn't a story. And he was like, what? One man in a hat killed the other guy in a hat. And that was like Owen's justification for the kind of for for storytelling. That's really all this was. It was Tom Waits grumbling to himself for like a half an hour. Then there's a flurry of gunfire and then he grumbles to himself some more and hauls house out of the canyon.
1: There's probably some commentary about man's place on Earth, how man comes and disturbs nature and then moves on its way. And then nature resumes as if man was never there. Uh, you um, know, with the butterflies and the deer and all that yeah, stuff. Yeah, did,
0: did the deer go and eat the body of the shot dude? <laughs> I don't know, but I, I felt the joy. I think they're vegetarian. He was a good man, but not entirely a good man. He did keep that one egg, owl egg, for himself. But he was patient and methodical and dedicated and focused, and he deserved it. And so I felt it when he cracks that stupid rock, and Mother McCree, the vein is there. Hello, Mr. Pocket. You're like, yes, right? And it's, and so for the other guy, I was like, You've, you are, you're a varmint for trying to steal it. And so when Prospector Dude gets it back, I was very happy. And that's really it. And it's beautiful. It was shot near Telluride. And uh, it's it seems otherworldly in its pristine valleyness. But that place really exists in Colorado. And that's all I have to say about that.
1: So freaking gorgeous. And I i guess it's interesting to understand prospectors' methodology, but was it accurate? I mean, don't you mind for gold and like mountainsides? No
0: clue. But no, I know there was a lot of it in the stream. A lot of the, the panning for gold was definitely a thing. And this is the first time I've seen it done to where I'm not sure if it's accurate, but used to an effect where I was like, oh, that makes sense.
1: Yeah, on a logical level, you triangulate on a source like that makes sense. But I'm not sure. just <laughs> no, no, just to no, clarify. Clue. I'm not sure how accurate that might be. Yeah. So we talked about Near All this, but that similarly sounds pretty I mean, maybe there was some commentary about the futility of life and the absurdity of justice, but ultimately a pretty straightforward, simple story.
0: It is with a lot of moving parts. That has the bank robbery and the pan dude and the hanging scene and the Indian fight and the other dude and the ultimate hanging scene. Like that movie moves around almost more than any of the other ones for an extremely simple story. I love it unreservedly for the Steven Root character, who is the most pitch-perfect character in this entire movie. Better than Buster Scruggs, in my opinion. And Tim Blake Nelson has been around a long time, and he's a great Buster Scruggs. Maybe the perfect Buster Scruggs, but he doesn't hold a candle to the comedic stylings of Steven Root as the banker. And that's what Buster Scruggs has become. It's become me revisiting this strange amalgamation of tales and just relishing in rewinding over and over again the moments that I find joyful.
1: Thematically consistent, tonally probably a masterwork. (laughs) <laughs> uh perf- with performances that are pitch perfect there's a lot going for Buster Scruggs and you obviously adore it i think we're going with a totally on this am i right
0: i can't help it if you even kind of like westerns and if you even ki- and even if you hate or will never watch some of the other ones again i told everybody that i could think of that they should watch this movie with a terrible title that was almost entirely overlooked by the Academy in terms of actual awards. It was nominated for a few things, but Coen Brothers are used to higher profile movies, and I think this one fell under the radar a lot like Inside Llewyn Davis. I think this will be one of the forgotten ones that I love that it's on the streaming platform. It will never not be on Netflix, so I will never not be able to go to my favorite parts and watch them with ease.
1: Yeah, definitely not one of their more commercial films. I think available only for a limited time in a limited theatrical release, but available eternally on, on Netflix. I liked seeing the Coen brothers just do something that they love.
0: Yep, and it shows. And
1: that is totally in their wheelhouse, right? And yeah, probably for little other motivation. I mean, I'm sure there was some monetary motivation, but this is them, I feel like, playing in the sandbox of their art.
0: Like I said, not pretentious. They literally, someone asked him, like, you know, were there other stories you choose to do this? Why would you choose to do this one? And the Coens are like, oh, we like, uh, you know, cowboy movies and we like singing cowboys. So we decided to make a singing cowboy movie. <laughs> They'll just do whatever they want when they have the opportunity. And I think it's great.
1: And feel free to take Buster Scruggs' A Piece of the Time. Uh, I think that if you—I <laughs> think in uh, in limited quantities, this thing can delight in the way that only Coen Brother movies can. I give The Ballad of Buster Scruggs an easy good, despite there being some sloggish moments— And I think we discovered what it was that really kind of tickled me or worked for me. Uh, We'd love to know what you think. 818-835-0473 is our hotline or whatever movies at gmail.com is our email address. You can reach us there. We'd love to know what you think. And I figured it might be appropriate, Wes, if we go out on this one with your favorite quote from The Ballad of Buster Scruggs. In impersonation, please.
0: You know, it bugs me that Netflix subtitled the first hit as bad shot, which it obviously isn't. It's consistently and thoroughly, pan
1: shot! (laughs) In Coen Brothers universe fashion, how do we say, thank you for listening, and we'll see you next time?
0: Like, like, I appreciate you taking the time to gander at my ramblings.
1: (laughs) Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time. Electric Acid
0: ElectriCast. Transform your influence. ElectriCast. ElectriCast.